morning, everybody. My name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and part of our preaching team. And before we continue in this series, I just want to acknowledge a milestone that we've passed recently. Uh, some of you were here, many of you actually weren't, but some of you were here nearly three years ago when we started casting the vision for and dreaming about uh, building the property that we're all currently sitting in. And uh, we asked those of you who are part of our church to prayerfully give sacrificially and generously, and you all responded in a significant way. We called that project Home Away From Home, and the idea for it was that we believe that uh, Jesus is creating a home forever with his people in the new heavens and the new earth, and the church gets to be a taste of that. We get to be a preview of that eternal home. We get to be a home away from our eternal home. We also realize that we're in a place where so many people are new to the area, they don't, they're not from here, they don't have roots here, they don't have connection or family family here, and the church family gets to be a home away from home for them in a different way. And so many of you bought into that and you uh, joined in that vision. Actually, when we had our commitment day for the Home Away From Home initiative, uh, you all committed $1.8 million, which is just phenomenal. And one of the things that we just want to celebrate here is that a few weeks ago, we passed the point where you not only have given $1.8 million, but now you've given over $2 million. And so I just want to say thank you and say congratulations. And we're literally sitting in this place because of the faith of those of you who sacrificed and who gave. Um, that's no small thing. I, I know if you're like me, uh, you have felt the pinch. You have felt the sacrifice that you've, that you've given, and you have just kept doing it. And what's amazing is some of you, even though you know that we're now like we've passed the goal, like way past the goal, you're still giving. Because you made a commitment and you want to honor your commitment and you know that the more we keep giving, uh, the more or the less, I guess, that we have to borrow. And so thank you for those of you who made those commitments, fulfilled those commitments. For those of you who never made a commitment, you don't even know what I'm talking about, but you've given to it. Uh, it just really makes a huge difference and, and I'm really thankful. So let me just take a minute. Let's pray. Let's thank the Lord for his grace to us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the home that is available to all who are in Christ. And we pray now that we, as your uh, body of believers here at Redemption Gateway, as your church family, that we would be able to be a, a home away from that eternal home, that we'd be a preview of life in the kingdom of God. God, thank you for the men and women and kids and students who have given generously and sacrificially so that we could be in this place that we're in. And we, uh, we don't take it lightly, Lord, and we see it as uh, evidence of your grace and your kindness to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. So turning to the scriptures, um, to kind of introduce where we're going today, I, I, just, I think it's important that we point out that, that recently uh, something important took place. A lot of people had been anticipating it for months, but it finally happened. Christmas decorations are for sale in Costco. <laughs> so I don't know if you've been in Costco lately, but you can buy a Christmas tree, you can buy all sorts of stuff in Costco, uh, decorations for Christmas, and it's amazing because we're still like 90 days away from Christmas, but you can buy all of that stuff. Uh, you know, Halloween stuff is so yesterday, right? It's a month away. You can't even buy Halloween stuff anymore. It's over. Uh, we're looking at Christmas. And so as we think about Christmas, I would like you to kind of uh, just think for a moment about Santa. What pops into your head when you think of Santa? When you think of what he looks like, how he travels, how he gets around, uh, how he gets into your house, when he comes, think about that for a moment. 
Um, because I, I think it's really interesting how we all have a pretty shared understanding of who Santa is, what he's like. So let's just think for a moment about his appearance. How does Santa look? You can shout it out if you want. How does Santa look? He looks fat. He wears red. He's jolly, right? When he, his, his belly jiggles like a bowl full of jelly when he laughs, right? This is what Santa looks like. He has a big white beard. He's heavy set. We, we get that. All right. Uh, how does Santa travel? By sleigh. And what pulls the sleigh of Santa? Reindeer. How many reindeer? Ooh. There's debate here. The purists say eight. And some of you say, that Rudolph, you know, all the other reindeer, you know, wouldn't let him play, but he got to get in there. So some of you say nine, but either way, we would all say, you know what, Santa is, you know, in a sleigh and it's pulled by flying reindeer. Of course, that's who Santa is. All right. Uh, When does Santa come? He comes on Christmas Eve. He comes on Christmas Eve. All right. What else? How does he get into your house? To the chimney, right? This baffles many of us in Arizona with children who want to know how does Santa get in here? And I don't know what you say, like through the laundry vent or whatever, but you know, normally he comes through the chimney. Now, here's the point of all this. This actually does connect to Exodus, okay? Here's the point of all this. We have a shared understanding. We have a shared picture. We have a shared paradigm for Santa. Do you know where that all came from? Because St. Nicholas has been talked about for a thousand years. Santa, in various ways, shapes, and forms, for hundreds of years. But all the things we just described that we would all say, oh yeah, that's what Santa's like. Do you know where that picture, that paradigm first came from? It came from a poem by Clement Clark Moore called Twas the Night Before Christmas. I grew up as a kid. Every Christmas Eve, my dad would read me Twas the Night Before Christmas. And that is the poem that first introduces the idea that Santa's heavyweight, that Santa is pulled by flying reindeer, that Santa comes on Christmas Eve. Before that, everyone else thought that he came on Christmas. Uh, That poem is the one that says that he came down the chimney. And so here's the thing. We get our picture of Santa from that one story. And and the, the connection to Exodus is that Exodus provides for the people of God a picture or a paradigm of salvation. If we want to understand who God is and how God saves One of the foundational stories we should look at that should shape our imagination, that should give focus to our understanding of that is the Exodus. This is not just like a cool story that happened in the Old Testament. This is the story. The rest of the Old Testament scriptures is looking back to the Exodus from Egypt and looking ahead to Jesus, who's the fulfillment of that Exodus. This is a pivotal key story. Now, if you're just joining us, or if you haven't been with us, just a little bit of review. We're we're just walking through the book of Exodus this fall, and what we've said is that Exodus is a book about a God who makes himself known in a world that's long forgotten him. God makes himself known to the people of Israel. They had forgotten about him. And then in the second half of the book, God's going to make himself known to the world through the people of Israel. And today culminates what we've been looking at over these last few weeks, which is this epic battle between God and Pharaoh. 
It began a few weeks ago when we looked at it with these nine plagues, these terrible disasters that God initiated to show the people of Egypt how powerful he was. He turns the Nile into blood, frogs and flies and gnats and hail and livestock dropping dead and all sorts of just terrible, terrible things, all of which is designed for God to say, I'm God and there is no other. Pharaoh, I know you think you're powerful. Uh, Pharaoh, I know you think that you guys have all these great gods. I'm stronger than them. And all of those plagues then culminated in the 10th plague, the plague of the firstborn, where the angel of death passes over the land and strikes down the firstborn of every family, even the firstborn of the livestock, except for those people who, trusting in the promises of Yahweh, sacrificed the Passover lamb and spread its blood over their doors, And they experienced being passed over so that they could be set free. That's the picture that we have in the Old Testament of salvation. And it culminates here in this particular story. So after the Passover, uh, the people start leaving. Uh, The Egyptians say, get out of here. We don't want you anymore. The the people of, of Israel actually say, hey, can we have all of your stuff? And the Egyptians say, yes, take all of our gold, take all of our silver, take all of our treasure, just get out of here. And so they start to go. So here's what I want to do in in the time that we have together. I want to just kind of tell you the story that we kind of are covering here in chapters 13 and 14. I'm just going to summarize the story. And then what I want to do is really focus in on a few different pictures that this shows us, a few different paradigms this gives us as we think about God and how he saved. So, so that's what we're going to do. So let's just kind of tell the story. The, the people of Israel, they start to leave. And just to kind of get this, there's probably a few million of them. Most scholars estimate there were probably about two million uh, Israelites when you think men, women, children. And so they're going in this huge mass. And it says at the end of chapter 13 that the Lord is leading them. The Lord is going with them. And the Lord is going with them in a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. So during the day, there's this giant pillar. We don't know uh, how, you know how exactly big it would have been, but large enough for everyone to be able to see, okay, that's where we're going. The Lord is leading us. At night, instead of being cloud, it would be fire so that they could travel by day or by night. This giant mass of people are leaving Egypt. Well, Pharaoh starts to panic. He was the one who said, you guys get out of here. But he starts to realize all of his slave labor is leaving. All of these people over whom he had power and control, they're out. And he panics, so he assembles the kind of special forces. He gets all of his best soldiers, all of his top chariot uh, drivers, and he says, we got to go get them. And so he starts chasing after the people of Israel. Now, here's, here's the thing that's, that's fascinating. As God leads them through, uh, out of Egypt, where does he lead them? Well, it says in the beginning of chapter 14 that he actually leads them to camp near the sea. So, so just picture this. Imagine that uh, you all are Egypt, and behind me is the sea, and I'm Israel. So I just left you, and I came, by God's leading, to the sea. 
which means what? What am I? Trapped. I'm stuck unless God intervenes. And sure enough, he does. But before he does, we encounter what happened in the passage that we read just a moment ago. The people of Israel, having been following this cloud, now turn around and see the army and see the chariots and see the you know, seal team of the, of the Egyptians coming after them, and they panic. They go, they go Moses, were there not graves back in Egypt? Why did you lead us here? What are we doing? This is crazy. And they are terribly, terribly afraid because they stop looking at the cloud and the fire and they start looking at the army that's chasing them. God says, hey, 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 stand firm. Don't be afraid. Look at the salvation that I'm gonna bring. I will fight for you. Trust me. And so God leads them, not away from the water, but toward it. And so Moses lifts up his hands and the strong wind blows. And actually before that happens, what happens is the pillar of cloud moves from in front of the people of Israel to behind them and creates this separation where the people of Israel are in the light and the Egyptian army is in the darkness. He separates the light from the dark. And then Moses raises his hands and the waters separate And there becomes a giant wall of water on the right and a giant wall of water on the left. And it says, out of that separated waters emerges dry ground. And the people of Israel walk on dry ground across the sea. Some of them probably taking their time. Some of them probably running. (laughs) But they're going. This This is serious stuff. And the army is chasing, and the army is pursuing, and the army is going to get these guys, and all of a sudden, God makes it where the chariot wheels start getting clogged with mud, and they don't function anymore. And the people of Israel escape out of the waters. Moses you know, directs his hands toward it, and the, the waters come crashing down, and the army of Egypt drowns in the Red Sea. And here's the way that it concludes. If you have your Bible, look at this in uh, Exodus chapter 14, verses 30 and 31. This is the very end of the chapter. It says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God saves from the power of Egypt by using his own power. God saves from the hand of the Egyptians by stretching out his hand and delivering and rescuing his people. God is glorified, Egypt is destroyed, and the people are set free. It's a beautiful story. And it's that picture, it's that paradigm that paves the way for our understanding of how God saves and what it is that that God is up to in saving us, not from slavery to Egypt, but from slavery to sin and slavery to to death. So here's what I want to do then. Is I, want to, I want to show us three pictures that this passage uh, shows us. We'll kind of dive into a couple little spots in the text that, that kind of where you'll see where I get this. Uh, but three different pictures that, that we're going to focus on here together. All right. So the first one is a picture of God's presence. A picture of God's presence. Uh, turn in your Bible to Exodus 13, 
verses 21 and 22. Exodus 13, 21 and 22. And this is at the end of chapter 13. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now, this may seem obvious, but, but I want to make sure we see it. Notice, verse 21 does not say, it doesn't begin by saying, and a pillar of cloud went before the people. What does it say? And the Lord went before them. So they're, they're seeing a cloud, they're seeing a pillar of fire, but in that cloud, in that fire is God himself. God is leading them. God is directing them. God is with them. And God does not depart from them. This is a picture of God's presence. When God gets involved in saving, God doesn't just rescue us from circumstances and stand back. No, he comes near us. He comes with us. This is how things were meant to be in the beginning. It says in the Genesis 1 and 2 that that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. They were together. They were with each other. There was closeness. There was connection. There was relationship. And then in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they basically say, you know what, God? We want your stuff. We don't want you. We want your gifts, but we don't want you. You ever treated God like that? God, give me marriage. Give me a spouse. Give me a date. But don't give me you. I, you stay over there. I just, but give me someone. God, give me great kids. But God, I, I'll, I'll take care of how to raise them. You just stay over there. But God, give me a great job. Well, <laughs> I'll take care of how to do it. But give me your stuff, right? That's what sin is. And so God says, you know what? Then you can't be near me. And he casts them out of the garden. But the rest of the scriptures is about God trying to get with, trying to get near his people. That's what he's doing here. He's saving them, not at a distance, but right there with them. We're going to see this in Exodus chapter 33. After, or I'm sorry, 30, yeah, 33. After the people kind of start to panic and God says, you know what? Well, why don't you guys just go without me? They say, no, 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 no. We don't want to go without you. Because if we go without you, we go with nothing. We want you. Psalm 23, the psalm that so many of us love, talks about how the shepherd is with us. When the prophet Isaiah prophesies a coming Messiah, what does he say his name will be? Emmanuel, which means God with us. After Jesus raises from the dead and he's standing with his disciple on the mountain and he gives us them this great commission to go into all the world and to make disciples and to baptize them and to teach them to obey everything that he's commanded, how does he conclude that? He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The promise of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 is that God will come and God will wipe away our tears and God will be with us and he will be our God and we will be his people. God wants to be with us. This is a picture of that. Do you want God with you? 
Are you going to be humble enough to admit that you need God with you? Last year and a half or so, uh, Molly and I have been uh, dealing with something that I'm sure some of you deal with. You know, over the last few years, we've realized that uh, we have these growing allergies. Uh, we've lived in Arizona now 17 years, and these allergies we didn't have uh, 18 years ago are now emerging. And so Molly went in to get tested, and she did the test that probably some of you have done, where they kind of prick you with everything on your back, and then they highlight on a page all the different things you're allergic to, right? And so basically, she found out she's allergic to Arizona. Is essentially because they handed her like a yellow piece of paper that was like, well, here are the four things you're not allergic to, but pretty much you're allergic to everything. And so she started this regimen of allergy shots. And the idea is that, you know, you do these allergy shots for a year or so, and then you've gone kind of maintenance. And hopefully after a few years, you've built up some resistance to some of these different things. Well, she did her first couple allergy shots and they went fine. And maybe like the third one, she had uh, what she thought was this like reaction to the shot. She actually had gotten in her car and started driving away and felt dizzy. And so she stopped and pulled over and called me and said, hey, I think I'm having this reaction. And, and as she talked with her doctor and just kind of explored it more, what she actually realized was she wasn't having an allergic reaction. She was having an anxiety reaction. She doesn't have that. If you know Molly, she is just steady. She's a rock, and she's strong, but she started going, you know what, I think I actually just am like nervous about this whole thing. And so she came to me, and she said, honey, would you, I know this is a lot to ask, because it's every week, but would you, would you just come sit with me while I get the shot? And so for the last year, about every Wednesday at 8 a.m., we have a little date at the AZ allergy office. And here's what's fascinating. I don't sit there after she gets her shot and go, how are you, how are you, are you okay, are you okay? Is everything all right? Hey baby, I'm here for you. Don't, don't worry, I got it, I, right? I don't do that. I don't sit there with my Bible and go, honey, let me, let me just pray the promises of God over you. You can relax, you, can, you don't have to worry, right? I don't do that, that would be perfectly fine to do. Here's what's fascinating. What comforts Molly is just that I'm with her. Just being there. The people of God are to be comforted by God being with us. And sometimes I think we just feel like, well, I don't want to be that needy, God. I don't want to be that dependent. I don't want to be that weak. And so God allows all kinds of stuff to go on in our lives that should wake us up to the anxiety and to the fear and to the panic and to the need that we have for the Lord. And this is a picture that God wants to be with you. He wants to be for you. He wants to be your God, walking with you, protecting you, leading you. Guiding you. That's what a relationship with God is. This is not mostly about how do you just get your sins forgiven. This is about how do you have your sins forgiven and be brought into a relationship with a God who loves you. That's the first picture we see in this story. The second picture we see isn't such a pretty one. It's a picture of human unbelief. Look again at chapter 14, verse 10. This is what we read earlier, but let's read it again. Chapter 14, verse 10. It says, when Pharaoh drew near, 
the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So notice the progression here. They see the approaching army, and they fear, and they cry out to the Lord, it says in verse 10. You're like, oh, that's good, until you hear what they say. And listen to what they say in verse 11. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. To which you read that and you go, really? Really? What? What? You go, wait, 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 wait. Hey, y'all were there when the Nile turned to blood, right? And you guys were there when the hail was pounding down like killing animals thickness of hail everywhere except where you lived. You were there, right? And you remember that morning when you woke up and you heard the distant cries in the land of Egypt from all these people who had lost their firstborn son, but you went into your room and your firstborn son was fine. You remember that, right? Hey, you remember 10 seconds ago when you were looking at God leading you in that cloud? And now you're saying, with acid. I mean, this is acid, isn't it? This accusation. This is, I mean, this is clever. Were there no graves here? What? Right, we read this and we go, what? Moses initially responds, okay. He says in verse 13, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. Like, guys, we'll be okay. Take your eyes off of the Egyptians, put them on God. But then you see his frustration in verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Uh, Unfortunately, in the English, that just sounds so encouraging. In the Hebrew, here's literally what it's saying. The Lord will fight for you. Shut up. Most English translations, some English translations carry that. The ESV, unfortunately, doesn't. This is a strong word. Right, Moses is not happy about this. Shut it. God is going to take care of you. Stop your griping. Shut it. And we look at these Israelites and we think, gosh, have a little faith. I mean, if I saw what you saw, I wouldn't do that. Really? We wouldn't? We, you could argue we've seen more. Some of you, you would have a story where you could say, you know what, I know about the way I was stuck in my sin and enslaved, and I found hope in Jesus, and Jesus died for me, and I trusted in him. He's risen from the dead. He's filled me with his spirit. He's empowering me, and a lot of us, we're just like these folks, aren't we? You know, we, we can praise God together on Sunday morning and be harsh with our kids on Sunday afternoon. We can come to Men's Fight Club or Women's Discipleship on Tuesday morning and oh, it's so great, and Tuesday night, and, and then Wednesday. 
All we can think about is how everyone else has it better than us. You can have an incredible time of prayer and Bible reading and devotion and memorizing scriptures. You fight for faith in the morning and then that night you can find yourself dissatisfied looking at pornography. So we're not too different, are we? You could argue we've seen more than they saw. And for sure you could argue that we've been given more because we have God's spirit living in us if we're followers of Christ. And yet we're just like this, aren't we? We see the problems around us. We see the people opposed to us and we fear greatly. We take our eyes off the Lord and everything rises up in us that says, oh, God can't be trusted. This isn't the only place in scripture we see this. We actually see this in a really interesting place in the gospels when Jesus is walking out on the water and he tells his disciples it's him and they're not sure they quite believe him. And here's what it says in Matthew chapter 14. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. That's amazing. (laughs) That's faith. That's incredible courage. He gets out of the boat Walks on the water, comes to Jesus, look at what it says. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Here you have two instances where the people of God see something and fear. But here's what I want to encourage you with. You see two very different responses. The people of Israel in this story Say, God, you hate me. God, you can't stand me. God, how could you do that to me? That's unbelief. The picture in Peter's story is what does he say? Lord, save me. Lord, save me. We're going to take our eyes off Jesus. I wish we didn't. I look forward to the day when we won't when there won't be any more indwelling sin and there won't be any more enemy attacking us and there won't be any more world that's just bent against God tempting us. I just can't wait for that day. I don't know about you. But we're still in a day where we're gonna take our eyes off Christ. We're gonna fear. And when we do, let's cry out, Lord, save us. Not, God, you hate us. But here's the amazing thing about God's salvation. He saves both the Israelites and Peter. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord and he is gracious and he is merciful and he will fight for his people even when their faith is lagging. And so this is the third picture that we get in this story is a picture of God's Salvation, a picture of God's salvation. Salvation, what we see in this passage is that salvation is not just freedom out of bondage and into uh, something else. It's not just forgiveness, but it's actually God's recreating power. We saw this actually in the plagues and we're gonna see this again here. Think about this for just a moment. I realize not all of you are very familiar with Genesis, uh, but for those of you who are, think about this. Genesis one, when God is creating the world, what are the first three things that happen? First, 
God says, let there be light, and there was light, and he separated the light from the darkness. That's the first thing. Second thing, there's this water, and he puts an expanse in the midst of the waters, and he separates the waters. What's the third thing? Out of this separation of the waters emerges dry ground. Look with me then at Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 19. It says, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel. Whoa, 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 I thought it was saying the Lord was going before the host of Israel. Yeah, the Lord, but here described the angel of God. All throughout the Old Testament, there's all these references to angels, but every place just about where it says the angel of God, it's talking about God himself. Usually people think the second person of the Trinity who would someday come as Jesus shows up in a kind of visible form. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. So get this. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and now moved behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. What's the first thing God does in this act of salvation? He separates the light from the darkness. What's the next thing he does? Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove back the sea by an east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. What's the second thing he does? He separates the waters. What's the third thing that happens? And the people of Israel went into the midst of sea, of the sea on dry ground. That's the same word in Genesis 1. What's going on here? What's going on here is that salvation is God recreating us. Salvation is not just that God forgives our sins in Christ, though he does, but that he actually makes us new. We are born again, the New Testament says. We are new creatures in Christ. We're not just kind of cleaned up, we're made new. And the ultimate salvation that is promised because Jesus was risen from the dead in a new resurrected body is that all things will be made new. This is what God's salvation is. He is recreating us. (laughs) You may be coming here going, gosh, I would just be happy if God would just forgive my sins. Yeah, that would be enough. But it's even better. He doesn't just forgive our past. He makes us new. And the question is, how do we get in on that? How do we get in on that? And the answer is found in this passage. How do we get in on this great salvation? We get in on it by seeing that God is fighting for us. This is what it says in 14, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. Listen, those of us who have complained against God, who have experienced God's grace and then ignored it later, the Lord will still, because he's gracious, fight for us. How do you get in on this? You see, you take your eyes off of the Egyptian army and you see the salvation that he will work for you. This does not mean you have to do anything. It means you have to see the God who does it all. Just just think about this. 
I have to imagine, if we just kind of put ourselves in this story, imagine you're the people of Israel and you're walking through and there's a giant wall of water, maybe hundreds of feet tall on your right. And a giant wall of water, hundreds of feet tall on your left. Here's here's what I just have to think. I have to think that some people, having seen all that God had done, they were walking through that water like, yeah, God, I knew you'd do it. That's what you said. Na, 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 right? Some people are strutting, right? They're confident. They're like, this is what God said he was going to do. Of course he did it. And I have to think that there were other people walking through, looking at the hundreds of feet tall water and going, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. Which of those two people did God save? Both. Because salvation does not depend on the amount of our faith, but on the object of our faith. Salvation does not depend on how strongly we believe in God. It it depends on God. God is the one who fights. God is the one who does this. God is the one who secures our salvation. And so we don't have to do a lot. We just look to him. Here's the good news of this passage, is that salvation is God taking complaining, fearful people and creating a path for us, a new path to have a new life where he goes before us, surrounds us, fights our battles, and sets us free. Isn't that good news? We have a God who is mighty to save. Let's pray. Father, today we come to you as uh, grateful children. Uh, God, acknowledging that we are not saved because Uh, We deserve it. We surely don't. We're very much like these Israelites who take for granted your good gifts and complain about things when they're hard. God, we're like that. We don't deserve it. And there's nothing we could do to earn our own kind of salvation. We need you to fight for us. And so thank you that you do. Thank you that Jesus is the one who's plunged into darkness, into the sea of despair. Thank you that he allows us to walk through on dry ground, to live lives of new creation power. God, thank you for that reality. We ask it and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.